0: All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, it is Monday, which means we are standing in the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton, thanking you for being here as we stand to see what it is that we believe, teach, and confess. Especially this week, as we continue in Article 27 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on monastic vows. This week, continuing to remember that regardless of our intentions, regardless of how pious and wonderful they are, monastic vows do not and cannot save us. To look at that, we're going to look at paragraphs 21 through 50 of Article 27 of the Apology. So let's get started. Second, religious exercises, obedience, poverty, and celibacy, provided the latter is not impure, are adiaphora. Therefore, the saints can use them without impiety, just as Bernard, Francis, and other holy men used them. They used them to restrain the body, so that they might have more freedom to teach and to perform other godly offices. Not that these works themselves are, by themselves, works that justify or merit eternal life. Finally, these exercises are of the type that Paul says bodily training is of some value, 1 Timothy 4.8. It is believable that in some places there are also currently good men engaged in the ministry of the word who use these exercises without wicked opinions. But to hold that these exercises are justifying services because they are counted just before God and through which they merit eternal life conflicts with the gospel about the righteousness of faith. This gospel teaches that for Christ's sake righteousness and eternal life are granted to us. It conflicts also with Christ saying, "In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men," Matthew 15:9. It conflicts also with this statement, "Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin," Romans 14:23. But how can the adversaries affirm that God approves these services as righteousness before him when they have no testimony of God's word? So far the opening paragraphs of this week The great word, adiaphora. Neither commanded nor forgiven or forbidden. Religious exercises, obedience, poverty, celibacy, all of these vows that are taken on by the different monastic societies are all well and good, but you can do with or without them. You can do them without being impious. You can refrain from doing them without being impious. You yourself can take on a vow of poverty or a vow of celibacy or a vow of obedience. A few years ago, it was the idea of reinventing the rule of St. Benedict for evangelicals. You can do it if you would like, but do it because it is something you want to do for bodily training and for the enhancement of your faith. Not that you think you can earn salvation and the forgiveness of sins from it. That you can merit the righteousness before God. Because that only happens for Christ's sake when you believe in his death and resurrection for you. Period. End of story. But we still have another 20-something paragraphs to go through to continue talking about this. Because it is not that simple when you get into the philosophizing of the Middle Ages, and the Roman Church. So we pick up in paragraph 24. See how impudent the adversaries are. Not only do they teach that these exercises are justifying services, but they add that these services are more perfect, that is, meriting more the forgiveness of sins and justification, than do other kinds of life. Here, many false and deadly beliefs agree. The adversaries imagine that they observe basic rules and counsels. Afterward, these generous men, dreaming that they have the merits of superabundance, sell these to others. These things are full of Pharisaic pride. It is the height of ungodliness to hold that these merits satisfy the Ten Commandments in such a way that merits remain. While such basic rules as these accuse all the saints, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, Deuteronomy 6.5. Likewise, you shall not covet, Romans 7.7. The prophet says all mankind are liars, Psalm one sixteen That is, not thinking rightly about God, not fearing God enough, not believing in Him enough. Therefore, the monks falsely brag that the commandments are fulfilled in the obedience of a monastic life, and more is done than what is commanded. This is also false. Monastic observances are works of the counsels of the gospel. The gospel does not advise about distinguishing clothing and meats and the giving up of property. These are human traditions about which it has been said, food will not commend us to God, 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Therefore, they are neither justifying services nor perfection. Indeed, when they are presented, covered with these titles, they are mere teachings of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. Virginity is recommended, but to those who have the gift as has been said before. However, it is a most deadly error to hold that evangelical perfection lies in human traditions. In this way, even the monks of the Muslims could brag that they have evangelical perfection. Neither is virginity part of the things called adiaphora, Because God's kingdom is righteousness and life in hearts, Romans 14, 17, perfection is growth in the fear of God, growth in confidence in the mercy promised in Christ, and growth in devotion to one's calling. Paul also describes perfection in this way, We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He does not say, We are continually receiving another hood or other sandals or other girdles. It is regrettable that such Pharisaic, indeed Muslim, expressions should be read and heard in the church for they say the perfection of the gospel in Christ's kingdom, which is eternal life, should be wed along with these foolish observances about vestments and similar trifles. Virginity is the recommended lifestyle, and commanded for those who are not married. But it cannot bring evangelical perfection. Yes, those who are not married should remain virgins, should remain celibate. But again, It is only for those who have been given the divine gift of continence in their celibacy, as we've talked about previously. You cannot demand virginity. You cannot command virginity upon people and expect them to follow. That is not the way humans are wired, because God wired us to be in relationships, particularly the marriage relationship between man and woman which is completely outside of virginity. Paul says it this way in Romans fourteen seventeen to 19 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What is the kingdom of God? It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Being approved by men and acceptable to God. Being built up by one another. Not torn down by more and more foolish regulations about what type of clothing, what type of food and anything like that. We continue on with Paragraph twenty eight Now here are Areopagites, excellent teachers on what an unworthy declaration they have recorded in the confutation. They say It has been clearly declared in the Holy Scriptures that the molastic life merits eternal life if maintained by a due observance, which by the grace of God any monk can contain. And indeed Christ has promised this much more abundant to those who have left home or brothers and so on Matthew nineteen twenty nine. These are the words of the adversaries, in which it is first said most rudely that the Holy Scriptures say that a monastic life merits eternal life. Where do the Scriptures speak of a monastic life? The adversaries plead their case this way, so men of no account quote the Scriptures. Although no one is ignorant that the monastic life is a recent creation, yet they quote the authority of Scripture and say too that their decree has been clearly declared in the Scriptures. Besides, they dishonor Christ when they say that men merit eternal life by monasticism. Not even to his law has God assigned the honor that it should merit eternal life. As he clearly says in Ezekiel twenty twenty-five: I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. First, it is certain that a monastic life does not merit the forgiveness of sins, but we receive this freely through faith as has been said before. Second, for Christ's sake, through mercy, eternal life is granted to those who through faith receive forgiveness and do not apply their own merits against God's judgment, as Bernard also says with great force. It is necessary, first of all, to believe that you cannot have the forgiveness of sins except by God's good will. Second, you cannot have any good work unless he has given it. Finally, you cannot merit eternal life by works unless this also is freely given. We have quoted above the rest of the passage, which speaks in the same way. Furthermore, Menard adds at the end, "...let no one deceive himself, because if he will reflect well, he will undoubtedly find that with 10,000 he cannot meet him, namely God, who comes against him with 20,000. We do not merit the forgiveness of sins or eternal life by the works of the divine law, but it is necessary to seek the mercy promised in Christ." the honor of meriting the forgiveness of sins or eternal life cannot be assigned to monastic observances since they are mere human traditions. Meriting salvation through monasticism or any other works that we devise dishonors Christ. Basically, and thinking especially as we are heading up to Holy Week, that you are walking up with your monastic vows, with your good works that you are trying to show God that you deserve salvation and forgiveness. You are walking up to the cross with Jesus on it and slapping him across the face. That is what you are doing by saying that what you do merits salvation. Because the scriptures from Genesis all the way through Revelation talk about Salvation being the gift of God's grace and mercy to a fallen mankind. Continuing on with paragraph 34. Those who teach that the monastic life merits the forgiveness of sins or eternal life and transfer the confidence owed Christ to these foolish observances completely suppress the gospel about the free forgiveness of sins and the promised mercy in Christ, which is to be grasped. Instead of Christ, they worship their own hoods and their own filth. But since they, but since even they need mercy, they act wickedly by inventing works of supererogation and selling them to others. We speak more briefly here about these subjects because from what we have said before about justification, repentance, and human traditions, it is clear that monastic vows are not rewarded with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Since God calls traditions useless services, they are in no way... Evangelical perfection. The adversaries deceitfully wish to appear as if they modify the common opinion about perfection. They say that a monastic life is not perfection, but that it is a state in which one acquires perfection. What a pretty face! We remember that this change is found in Gerson. Clearly, level headed people, although they did not risk removing monastic life from being praised as perfection, were offended by its excessive praise. So they made the change that monasticism is a state in which one acquires perfection. If we follow this logic, monasticism will be no more a state of perfection than the life of a farmer or mechanic, for these also are states in which one acquires perfection. All people in every vocation should seek perfection, that is, grow in the fear of God, in faith, in love toward one's neighbor, and similar spiritual virtues. They changed the definition. That monasticism isn't automatically perfection, but it is a state where you can attain perfection as if you cannot attain it anywhere else. But Melanchthon points out that the monks are no more perfect than farmers, mechanics, and other secular vocations. Everyone, regardless of your vocation, should seek perfection because true perfection is to grow in the fear of God, to grow in faith, to grow in love towards one's neighbor, and to grow in similar spiritual virtues. That is what true perfection is. Not that you have given up property, not that you have become celibate, not that you have taken a vow of silence and done it for so long. No, no. It is growing in faith in Christ, which is what Every Christian is called to do. We pick up and read for a while, starting in paragraph 38, as Melanchthon gives different variations on this last topic. In the accounts of the hermits, there are stories of Anthony and others that make the various stations in life equal. It is written that when Anthony asked God to show him how he was progressing in this kind of life, he was shown in a dream a certain shoemaker in the city of Alexandria for comparison. The next day, Anthony came into the city and went to the shoemaker to determine his exercises and gifts, and he spoke with the man. He heard nothing except that early in the morning, the shoemaker prayed a few words for the entire state and then worked his trade. Here, Anthony learned that justification is not to be assigned to the kind of life that he had entered. Although the adversaries now lessen their praises about perfection, they actually think otherwise. They sell and apply merits to others under the appearance that they are obeying basic rules and counsels. So they actually maintain that they possess surplus merits. What is this other than assuming perfection to oneself? The Confutation states that the monks try hard to live more closely in line with the gospel. So it assigns perfection to human traditions if they are living more clearly in line with the gospel by not having property, being unmarried, and obeying the monastic rule regarding clothing, meats, and similar silly things. The Confutation also says that the monks merit eternal life more abundantly and quotes scripture, everyone who has left houses, and so on, Matthew 19.29. So here it claims perfection also for man-made religious rites. But this passage in no way favors monastic life. Christ did not mean that leaving parents, wife, and siblings is a work that must be done because it merits the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Indeed, such leaving is cursed. Anyone who leaves parents or wife to merit the forgiveness of sins or eternal life by this work dishonors Christ. There are two kinds of leaving. One happens without a call, without God's command, which Christ did not approve, Matthew 15, 9. The works we choose are useless services. When Christ speaks about leaving wife and children, it becomes clear that he does not approve this kind of leaving. We know that God's commandment forbids leaving wife and children. God's command to leave is different, that is, when power or tyranny pushes us either to leave or to deny the gospel. Here we are commanded to bear injury and should rather allow not only wealth, wife, and children, but life to be taken from us. Christ approves of this kind of leaving, and so he adds, for the gospel's sake, Mark 10 29. He does so to illustrate that he is speaking not of those who injure wife and children, but who bear injury because of the confession of the gospel. For the gospel's sake, we should leave even our own body. Here it would be ridiculous to hold that it would serve God to kill oneself and to leave the body without God's command. So too it is ridiculous to hold that it is a service to God without his command to leave possessions, friends, wife, and children. Clearly they twist Christ's word into a monastic life unless perhaps the declaration that they receive a hundredfold in this life is in place here. Many become monks not because of the gospel, but because of extravagant living and laziness. They find the most plentiful riches instead of slender inheritances. Because the entire subject of monasticism is full of shams, they deceptively quote scripture passages. So they sin doubly. They trick people, and that too, under the appearance of the divine name. They also quote another passage about perfection. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Matthew 19:21. This passage has stirred up many who have imagined that casting away possessions and the control of property is perfection. Let us allow the philosophers to praise Aristippus, who cast a great weight of gold into the sea. Such stories have nothing to do with Christian perfection. The division, control, and possession of property are civil ordinances approved by God's word in the commandment, you shall not steal, Exodus 20, 15. The abandonment of property has no command or advice in the scriptures. Evangelical poverty does not come from the abandonment of property, but from not being greedy, from not trusting in wealth, just as David was poor in a most wealthy kingdom. Personal property, private property, is a blessing from God protected by the seventh commandment and the monks or the Anabaptists who went off and decried having private property and everything belonging to the church or some even saying that nobody is allowed to own land, period. That's not the way... God speaks about the Bible. In fact, when God brings Israel into the promised land, he allots for them specific places in the promised land for them and for their descendants forever. Check out Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. He refused to sell his inheritance from his ancestors to the king. Why? Because it was what God had given to his family. His personal property. That was what drove him to defy the king. That's what's also given him his death. On the other hand, poverty does not come from desertion of the property. Poverty comes from not being greedy and covetous over the property you have, which is why the early church in the first generation would have people sell their property to be able to take care of the needs of the others. It wasn't that they were doing this to say, hey, look at me, I am becoming more poor for the sake of the gospel. No. Not that I'm becoming more perfect by selling my property. But I am helping and loving my neighbor. That is why I am doing it. All right, so we finish up our reading this week with paragraphs 47 through 50. Since the abandonment of property is merely a human tradition, it is a useless service. The praises in the extravagante are also excessive. This papal bull says that abandoning ownership of all things for God's sake gains merit, is holy, and is a way of perfection. It is very dangerous to praise so excessively a matter that conflicts with political order. But they say Christ speaks about perfection here. Indeed, those who quote the text in a butchered way violate it. Perfection is found in what Christ adds, Follow me, Matthew 19, 21. Here he presents an example of obedience to one's calling. Because not all callings are the same, this calling does not belong to everyone, but only to that person with whom Christ speaks. In the same way, we are not to imitate the call of David to the kingdom, 1 Samuel 16, or of Abraham to slay his son, Genesis 22, Callings are personal, just as business matters themselves vary with times and persons. However, the example of obedience is general. Perfection would have belonged to that young man if he had believed and obeyed his vocation. So with us, perfection is that everyone with true faith should obey his own calling. Christ calls everyone to follow him in their vocations. As St. Paul says, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. Jesus calls you to follow him in whatever vocation you have been given. Whether it's in business, it's in labor, it's in the church, whatever the vocation is, whatever he has blessed you with, whatever he has called you to, that is where you follow him. That is where you find perfection. Because once again, perfection is growing in your faith in him growing in your acknowledgement of the mercy you receive from him and that is where we find the strength the strength not only to go on from day to day but the strength to wrestle with all the theologies around us the strength to wrestle with every false notion and every twisting of scripture so that we may truly praise, worship, and honor God as is right for Him. That's it for this week. I am Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me this week. And I invite you to come back next week as we finish up this article on the monastic vows. Also be here for digging deeper into the Psalms, Pro Wrestling America, the weekly sermons, the moments of meditation, all the great Offerings that are here to help you to wrestle with the theology around you. Amen.